Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to see you. We're in the third chapter of Nehemiah. It's called How to Get God's Work Done. This is one of those chapters that would be sort of easy to just skip right over. Yeah. At first glance, uh, Nehemiah does look a little bit dry. In fact, if you've been reading ahead, you may even be wondering, what in the world are we going to look at in Nehemiah 3? Someone said to me last Saturday night on the way out, uh, hey, I'm really looking forward to seeing how you handle chapter 3. So uh, that's one of those kind of chapters. Some preachers do skip over it completely. Um, so if you haven't looked ahead, you're probably wondering by now, what in the world is in chapter 3? That's, what, that's where we're going today. But first I want to give you a, a brief historical context in case you've missed the last few weeks. This will help you understand where we are. So in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army besieged Jerusalem, eventually destroying the city. The walls of the city were knocked down. The temple was burned and destroyed. Most of the people were deported, deported to Babylon where they were forced into slavery. Jerusalem was left behind in ruins. But God did not forsake his people. He had a plan for them. And he moved upon King Cyrus, a later king who assumed power, to make a decree that the Jews could return to their land and restore it. And in three stages, over about 100 years, they were allowed to migrate back to Jerusalem, only to discover that the city was still demolished and destroyed, extremely vulnerable to enemies. And that brings us to Nehemiah and his day. Nehemiah was the one who led the third wave of returnees to Jerusalem. But before that happened, one day as he was serving as cupbearer to the king, his brother Hanani came and visited him after a road trip to Jerusalem, and he told him just how bad things were back in Jerusalem. Nehemiah understood the importance of Jerusalem to the Jewish people, so his world was rocked. He was upset, and he turned to prayer, and he began fasting and praying for a solution from God to this problem. And the sample of that prayer is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 1. This fasting and prayer by Nehemiah continued for four months. And finally, he gets the opportunity to speak to King Artaxerxes and ask permission to rebuild the city of his fathers. And that conversation is the first part of Nehemiah chapter 2. And after getting permission from King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah journeyed back to Jerusalem, now with the king's authority to rebuild the city of his fathers. It's 445 B.C., roughly. And here's a map showing the journey that Nehemiah and those with him took, all the way from Susa, the capital of the Media Persia Empire, 800 to 1,000 miles all the way back to Jerusalem. And after he arrived... He rested a few days, the text tells us, and then he went out at night to inspect the walls, the rubble, all the, that they were going to be involved in rebuilding. And that brings us to chapter 3, and before we get there, if you haven't already, please pull out your sermon notes or download those on your app, and please take a Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah 3. Here's some preliminary observations on the chapter while you're turning to it, all right? Three things to help us sort of prepare for the message of Nehemiah as it relates to us today. First, it reveals his unusual gifts of leadership and organization. Nehemiah was able to mobilize and empower 44 groups of people for the difficult task of rebuilding the city walls. And as we'll see, he was uniquely able to motivate people and to organize the work. 
Observation two, it shows people working together can accomplish much more than they can alone. Working together is so important. Nehemiah arrived at Jerusalem and he organized the residents and he rallies them to rebuild the city in just 52 days. That's a miracle, 52 days, as we'll see later. He did it by getting all of the people to work together as a team. And as we read this chapter, I want you to pay special attention to these four phrases. Next to him, next to them, after him, and after them. These expressions are used 28 times in Nehemiah 3. And the principle is this. Every person has a job to do to get God's work done. Working together, we can accomplish much more than we ever can by ourselves. One example close to home, by the way, that comes to mind is reaching the unreached of the world for, for the Lord. So there's something like 3 billion unreached people in the world today. Many of them are in completely unreached areas, so there's no one around them who can even share the gospel with them. We call them unreached people groups. But I love the fact that as a church, we can kind of join arms and we can reach unreached peoples by, like the Tamajic of Niger, and by joining with other people who are doing that, other mission agencies who are doing that. And we can do that where individually we could never get anything done like that. That's one of the privileges of being able to work together to accomplish something much bigger than ourselves. So back to Nehemiah, as we're going to see in this chapter, the, the wall workers accomplished this incredible task, and in the process they set a world record for teamwork. Observation three, it reveals God's love for Jerusalem. Really the whole book, but this chapter reveals God's love for Jerusalem. Why would God go to such great lengths to send Nehemiah all the way back to Jerusalem? Well, because this is a city that has a special place in God's heart. He has chosen Jerusalem as the place for his name and for his glory to uniquely dwell. I want to give you some examples from Scripture. The first is Psalm 132. And it says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Then Psalm 87 says, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places, than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Lest you think that this is just kind of a past tense thing that God said about Jerusalem, I want you to look forward with me now to Revelation chapter 21. This is a future thing as well. Revelation 21 says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So God tells us here that Jerusalem is the eternal epicenter of the world and that he will dwell with us from this place forever. That's our future Destiny, beloved, and that's a great promise. All right, so let's turn to Nehemiah 3 now. And the chapter is an easy one to outline because it's organized around the nine gates of the city that Nehemiah mentions. 
Nehemiah begins up on the north of the city at the Sheep Gate and moves counterclockwise around the city until he gets back to the Sheep Gate. So that's how it's organized. If you look at the map of the walls on your sermon notes now, it looks something like this. This is what we think the city looked like in Nehemiah's day. Because of limited archaeological evidence, this merely represents our best guess of actual locations mentioned by Nehemiah. Although, certainly there are some things that we're going to read about today. We know exactly where they are because they're still there. And you can visit them today when you're in Jerusalem. Let me mention a couple of them. For example, the uh, Gihon Springs and this tunnel, underground tunnel that goes down to the Pool of Siloam. Those are there. Those are places that you can visit today. Here's an artist's rendition of what Jerusalem may have looked like in Nehemiah's day, so kind of a 3D look with houses and orchards and, and stuff like that. All right, so Nehemiah begins by describing the rebuilding at the north wall. So let's begin at the north wall. Okay, because of its proximity to the temple, this is an area that was specially of interest to Nehemiah and to the people. Here's where the record begins. So I'm going to begin at Nehemiah 3.1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur the son of Imri built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. We'll stop there. That's the north wall. It's encouraging to note that One of the first to respond was the high priest, a man named Eliashib, and a group of priests along with him, and they rebuilt the wall near the sheep gate. It's believed that the sheep gate is where the sheep being sacrificed at the temple would have come into the city. Okay, so obviously the priests would have had a special interest in that part of the project. What a great example the priests were, and the high priest set in being some of the very first to respond to Nehemiah's call to rebuild. And it's a delight here and throughout this chapter to read about the different groups of people involved in the project. By the way, please notice in in verse 2 that there was even a group of men all the way from Jericho that took part in the project. Jericho is a, a good day's journey to the east of Jerusalem. But they were there, and they were devoted to doing their part of the project. But the harmony of the scene is marred by the painful exception mentioned about the nobles of Tekoa in verse 5. So the city of Tekoa is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. The people of Tekoa took a double share of the rebuilding effort, as we'll see later. But why did their nobles, why did the leaders of Tekoa hold back? We're not told exactly. I don't know if they feared the threats of their enemy or if they thought this was a project that was beneath their dignity. But it's interesting to me that Nehemiah doesn't allow their opposition to become an issue. He just works with those who share his vision, who are willing to cooperate. So next we read about the work on the West Wall. And according to verse 6, 
The part of the work on the west wall began at the gate of Yeshana, which is also called the Old Gate. That sits on the northwest corner of the city. Uh, some believe that it's called the Old Gate because it was the original or the first entrance into the Old City of Jerusalem. And by the way, gates are mentioned often. Gates are super important for a walled city because gates were usually sort of the weakest point of defense. When the enemy came up against the city to attack a city since the gates were made of wood, that was the place they could usually break down the easiest or burn with fire. And so it was extremely important to, to work on the gates and make sure they were, they were strong as could be. So let's pick it up at verse 6. Joida the son of Paseah and Meshulam the son of Besodiah repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. So let's stop there. The area of the wall just west of the temple was called the Broad Wall in that day, and it's mentioned as such in verse 8. And interestingly, in 1970, archaeologists discovered some remains of this part of the wall. And the remains that they found were 22 feet wide. That's how far across the broad wall was. In fact, here's a photo of what the remains of the broad wall look like today. Because when you walk through the city of Jerusalem in the Jewish quarter, you come to this place, kind of dug down into the Jewish quarter. And uh, the broad wall was built by Hezekiah about 700 B.C., to fortify and enlarge the city as they expected Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, to invade. And so they strengthened the walls, enlarged the city with this broad wall. And you can still see it today, but it's referenced by Nehemiah as well hundreds of years later. By the way, please notice what verse 11 in the text says. It highlights a man by the name of Malchijah. It says that he repaired another section of the wall. He is one of several men and groups who are mentioned throughout chapter 3, who did extra work. They not only did what their assignment was, apparently, but they went above and beyond their assignment, and they're pointed out by name for special recognition, so I'll be looking for them. And then finally, make special note of verse 12, these noble young women also left the security of their homes to work on the wall, and they too were given credit for doing so. Who knows what influence these courageous young women had in encouraging the rest of the workers with this huge project of rebuilding Jerusalem. Well, next we come to rebuilding the southern wall, which begins at the valley gate. So let's read that in verse 13. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. 
Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. So I just read about the rebuilding of the dung gate and that part of the southern wall. The dung gate is translated the refuse gate in some translations. Literally, the words, the Hebrew words mean the gate of ash heaps. And it's through this gate that the garbage from Jerusalem, we believe, was carried out because the Valley of Hinnom, you see that on your sermon notes, that was basically the city dump of the day. Someone asked me last week uh, if they could see a picture of the Dung Gate in Jerusalem today. So that's what this next picture is. Here's what the Dung Gate looks like today. So this is not the gate or the wall that we're reading about in Nehemiah because this wall, this gate, was built in 1500 A.D., so 2,000 years after Nehemiah. All right? But that's what the, there is a Dung Gate in Jerusalem now. It's, it's, in a, it's farther north than it was in Nehemiah's day, but that's what it, what it looks like. Here's another photo of the present day, a better photo of the, the walls of Jerusalem today. You can see they're, they're strong, they're, they're very straight and well built. I'm not suggesting that the wall in Nehemiah's day was quite this big or this, this uh, uh, straight. Uh, it was built in 52 days. The wall that you're looking at on the picture here was built over several years by the Ottoman Turks. So not the same walls, uh, but I want to give you an idea of what walls around a city look like. All right, so... The, Nehemiah lived about 2,500 years ago, long before cameras were available. That's why we have no pictures of the walls that we're reading about here in Nehemiah. So here's a map of the city again and the gates again to give you some perspective on where we're at. We're talking right now about the southern wall or this area from the valley gate on around to about here. Okay, and we're reading about the dung gate right now. Okay. And I, I want you to notice this again, the Gihon Springs, Hezekiah's Tunnel, all the way down to the Pool of Siloam, okay? Dungate and the Pool of Siloam are the southernmost parts of the ancient old city of Jerusalem. The Pool of Siloam, I think I've mentioned before, it's one of my favorite places to visit in Jerusalem. Uh, we know that it's actually the, the literal place from Nehemiah's day. It's the place where Jesus healed the... Uh, the man who was, was blind, so you can visit the places that happened. And it, I like it. One of the reasons I like it is because our daughter Janae actually was involved in the archaeological excavations there when she was a student in Jerusalem. So it's just kind of fun for us. Here's, here's a uh, look at what the Pool of Siloam looks like today. So uh, it was actually a huge pool, and it's very... You get a little bit of a distance here, but it went out twice, about twice as far that way. But the Israelites don't have access to this land. It's owned by some other people, and uh, they don't want to get into a war, so they can't excavate that way. So it doesn't give you a very good picture of how big it is or how big it was. So Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, uh, had his men build a tunnel, an underground tunnel, from up above from the Pool of Siloam down to this pool, the Pool of Siloam from the Gihon Spring, excuse me, down to the Pool of Siloam. So when they were attacked by the enemies, they would still have access to water. And so we're reading about these very places here in Nehemiah 3. That tunnel, Hezekiah's tunnel, they call it, looks like this. Here's a picture of a gal. I don't know who this is. I got this on the internet because all of my pictures are too dark to see. So anyway, this is what walking through Hezekiah's tunnel looks like today. And uh, some of you were there with, with us about a year ago and, and, and took that walk. 
And let's move on now for the sake of those who are claustrophobic. All right? <laughs> let's pick it up at verse 15 in Nehemiah's description of rebuilding. He said this, And Shalom, the son of Kolheza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. The Pool of Sheila is an alternative name for the Pool of Siloam. And you might recall back in, in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, the reference to the fountain gate that Nehemiah made there in his memoirs. It was so broken down, he said he had to get down off his animal. They couldn't get through the rubble with the animal, so he had to, to do the inspection walking around on foot uh, to see the city walls uh, before they got started. So let's pick it up again at verse 16. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. All right, and now you know why uh, I was tempted to skip over chapter 3. <laughs> By the way, it's worth noting that Nehemiah took advantage of convenience. Rather than having people uh, commute from up north down to down south or from one side to the other in Jerusalem to do their work, he had them building next to their homes. Commuting, of course, would have wasted time and decreased efficiency. It would have made it more difficult for the workers. It would have taken them some time to get there and back. It would have made it more difficult to feed them. They had to be fed during the day. Uh, by arranging the work close to their homes, it, it made it easier to sustain them with food. It made it possible for them to guard their families when they came under attack. And it relieved their, the workers about worrying for the safety of their loved ones. I think it also ensured them, if you think about it, it ensured that each person would put their best effort into the job of rebuilding the walls. I mean, you want the wall to be strongest at your house, right? And so I think that was wise. Verse 24 continues. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the, or at the king's house now, notice that, at, of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Aphel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. So as far as I know, this is the only mention in all of Scripture about 20th century politics in America. So, the Watergate. Some of you will, <laughs> some of you will get that later, all right? 
Finally, notice the mention of the Dekoites again in verse 27. Verse 27 says, After him, the Dekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. You might remember the Dekoites from verse 5. They were the ones that the nobles refused to help, but they repaired a section up on the north side of the temple. Here, they took on another section of the wall, and they're commended for doing yet another, another part of the project. All right, finally, we come to the east wall. So let's begin by looking at the map one more time, the map of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. So we've, we've looked at the rebuilding from the Sheep Gate over to the Old Gate, so the north wall, then the west wall down to the Valley Gate. We looked at the south wall from the Valley Gate to the Water Gate. So uh, these north, south, east, west aren't in Scripture. I've just kind of designated it for simplicity. But we're going to read now from this area all the way back up to the Sheep Gate. I've called that the East Wall. And this whole side would have been by far the most difficult part to rebuild because there's a steep hillside here that goes down into the Kidron Valley. So notice the horse gate as we read verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. So the horse gate is believed to be where horse traffic entered the old city uh, to get to the palace. So, you know, when the king came and went from the city, he would have had a large procession. They would have been on, on horseback. And so it's believed that the horse gate was next to the palace, and that's where King David and the kings came in and out of the old city. In fact, when you're in the, that, that part of old Jerusalem today, you'll see the excavations going on even right now in an area that they are saying, we believe this was King David's palace. Verse 29 continues. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So the circuit of the wall is complete. We've gone all the way around from sheep gate back to the sheep gate. And one of the things you notice in chapter 3 is that the focus is not at all on Nehemiah. It's not about the leader. It's all about the workers. I don't even remember reading Nehemiah's name as we read the chapter, other than another man by the name of Nehemiah, whose name we came across. And you could, but you can picture Nehemiah going out daily, probably inspecting the walls, encouraging the workers, maybe even lending a hand from time to time when needed. But just the fact that he mentions all of these people and all of these groups by name shows the priority that Nehemiah had on encouraging people. And it raises the question for us today, are we like that? Are we encouragers of people? Are you an encourager? You see, what Nehemiah personifies, we're all commanded to participate in. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5 says it in the form of a commandment. Paul wrote this. He said, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. Encouragement is a gift that is greatly needed in our world today. And so I'd ask you today, how are you doing at encouraging others? 
or to come at it from a different angle, who have you found to be a great encouragement in your life? As I think back in my life, I think of different people at different times in life God used to encourage me strongly. And I think of an example just from a couple of days ago. We had a meeting with a couple that my wife had asked to uh, pray for us several weeks ago about an important decision we were making. And, and uh, they not, the, this couple not only prayed for us about it, they said, can we get together and talk about that a little bit more? We have some questions. Uh, and so we met with them on Friday, and it was such an encouragement to get together and to feel like God used their insights. They had some similarities to our own situation. They could share those insights, and God used that to give some direction and support encouragement to us in our decision. Encouragement is such a valuable gift. And I'd ask you, are you an encourager? Maybe God would put on your heart today someone you know needs encouragement. Listen to his his prompting if he does so. All right, let's look at three important principles for doing the work of God. We're talking about how to get God's work done. You see, God calls us into his work with him. He asks us to join him on his mission. So there's some principles that I want to draw from this chapter, three important principles that come right out of Nehemiah's example, but each with a New Testament scripture that sort of puts it into succinct wording, all right? And the first principle is the principle of coordination. God's work is best done in an organized and orderly way, in an organized and orderly way. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, all things must be done properly and in an orderly way, manner, excuse me, in a properly and orderly manner. And I think there are a few illustrations in Scripture better than the example of Nehemiah. God used him to organize and to lead the rebuilding of the walls of the city. Even though the project was, was basically a volunteer endeavor, it was far from haphazardly. Okay, largely because Nehemiah was a confident and capable leader. Every individual knew precisely where he belonged on the project, what was expected of him. Nehemiah organized 44, as I said, separate groups of workers who got this job done. By the way, I want to pause and thank God for all of you in this church family who have gifts of organization and administration. I'm thankful for Nancy and Dan and Reg and so many in in our church office who are administratively gifted. God knows how badly we need you. I thank thank God for all of the volunteers, many, many volunteers in our church family who do the same thing for all of our ministries. Things like MOPS and Awana and men's and women's ministries and the food bank rely on so many volunteers who get us organized and keep the work going. God's work is best done in an organized and orderly way. Principle two is the principle of cooperation. God's work requires the teamwork of all kinds of people from different walks of life. Teamwork. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. Listen, I love the fact that God uses such a great variety of people to accomplish his work in our world. There were priests and rulers and jewelers and silversmiths, craftsmen, even commuters from other cities rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. I think that's an illustration of how God loves teamwork. Okay, good teamwork is necessary in every area of life, in our families, in our businesses, in our military, in our church. Paul reminds us in Romans 12 that, that bodies 
don't function well unless they work together in harmony. That's so true of churches as well. And that's one reason why God gives spiritual gifts to his church. Uh, 1 Peter 4.10 says this, As each one, as every Christian has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, God has given you a spiritual gift to fulfill his work here on earth, to serve one another and fulfill his mission. Okay? See, none of us is strong in every area, and that's great because that keeps us interdependent on each other. We need each other in the body of Christ. Our church needs every person involved in ministry, everyone doing your part. And that includes every person here. All right? Some of you might not know what your gifts and your abilities are, and for that reason, we offer what we call our shape class, Discovering Your Shape for Ministry, and we have one coming up on March 18th, so three weeks from yesterday, March 18th, and we're inviting you to be part of that class if you want to discover more about how God has shaped you for ministry. All right, so there's the principle of coordination, the principle of cooperation, and the third principle is commendation. The Lord remembers and rewards those who serve him. Nehemiah 3 is filled with the names of the honored faithful. And it even includes some of those who were marked out as unfaithful. But an example of the faithful would be Malchijah, one of several people and groups of people who are mentioned because they did extra work. Okay? They not only did what was assigned or asked them to do, but they volunteered for a second assignment. The men of Tekoa would be another example. Even though their nobles refused to help out, they're pointed out by name for special recognition because they took on another assignment. And perhaps that's just a sample of what is going to be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ when we as believers stand before the Lord Jesus for reward. The Bible says in Romans 14, 10, it says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer will stand someday before the judgment seat to be rewarded by him. He'll review our service here in this life for him. He'll reward us accordingly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. And Paul also says, but some will suffer loss. Yeah, they'll get to heaven, but there won't be a reward because they failed to serve Christ here. Be assured, beloved, the Lord remembers and rewards those who serve him. So let's talk about some application as we wrap up. Three next steps. Number one is I choose to be an active part of the team. Fill in that blank, whatever comes to mind, okay? A great place is just joining our church family, you know, go through the membership process and become an official part of the team. But even beyond that, I'm thinking of our ministry teams, getting involved and serving in some way here. Whether it's MOPS or whether it's Awana or children's ministry or youth ministry or our worship team and choir, we have so many places that you can plug in and serve and and, uh, let God use you, encourage you to do that, to be an active part of the team. Next step two, I choose to let God use me by. What comes to your mind? Maybe God is putting something on your heart to do to serve him here, okay? If you're not sure where, ask him to help show you where. Or come to our shape class. 
in three weeks. So just write on your card, I, I want to serve. Can you help me figure out where? We'll be glad to sit down with you and figure that out. I pray that God is saying to some of you, it's time to get into a small group or to recommit to a small group. Whatever it is, I choose to let God use me by fill in the blank. And then finally, I will, one last blank to fill in. Whatever God's Spirit is sort of saying to you today, I want you to write that down so you remember it. And I'd suggest one of the ways that that I would... Uh, encourage you to be involved is through what's called the prayer mosaic. You've heard us talking about that for a week or two. The, the prayer mosaic is starting today right after this service. Uh, right after each of the next two services, in fact, over in the gym, we have what's called the prayer mosaic. Six interactive stations. You can do it individually. You can go through with a group or with a family or with a friend, however you want to do it. You can take 15 minutes and do it by just selecting a couple of the stations, or you can take an hour to do it if you have more time by going to all six of the stations. It's a place where you can pin your burdens up on the cross as you uh, pray over them, give them to the Lord. It's a place to pray for our missionaries. There's a guided prayer rock around the gym for different things, and uh, I just want to encourage you to take part in that today if you have time right after the service. And by the way, after you do the prayer mosaic, there's this uh, cool little uh, wristband that says hashtag LC3 prayer. I want to encourage you to pick that up as well. So in, in the um, chairs in front of you, there's also this, in, this uh, brochure that says prayer at home guide. Would you take that out of the chair in front of you, one per family or one per couple? or one per person, and take that, drop it in your uh, Bible now, or put it with your stuff, take it home and read it, because we're kicking off our Prayer at Home campaign with the Prayer Mosaic today, but this is the rest of it that I'd like you to read about, and you'll be hearing more about that through social media and in the coming weeks. All right, let's, let's bow and let's pray together as we close. Father, we thank you for this... Uh, such an interesting chapter here in Nehemiah and how he led this work to rebuild the city and to protect your people. God, we pray that you'd give us your heart to do your work and to join in your mission here but also around the world. God, help us to faithfully choose to do our part and to be part of the team. And God, I thank you for this amazing team that you've put us in, the Lake City Church family, and I give you thanks for it. God, help us to serve together in teamwork, to serve together in, in an organized way, to accomplish as much as we can for your glory and for the fame of your name. And uh, Lord Jesus, we just want to say as we close today that we know this is all about you. It's not about us, it's about you. And uh, God, we acknowledge that it was through Jesus that, and his blood that our sins were covered we thank you for the forgiveness that he made for us at the cross. And friend, if you're here today and you've not yet received God's forgiveness, if you've never prayed to ask him to be your savior, as I close, I just give this invitation prayer. I invite you to silently pray along with me and receive God's gift to you. Just say something like this. God, I want your forgiveness. Father, I can't earn it, but I can receive it by faith as a gift. And I put my faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection for me today. Thank you that he was willing to die in my place. And I receive his forgiveness today. I turn from my sins and receive that amazing gift. It's in his name we pray all these things. And everyone agreed and said, amen. Love you guys. Thanks for being here today.